had chocolate tips. I don't know where he lost his velvet or whatever. All like almost all the tips of his antlers were were um, like brown, and they called him. They, were, they nicknamed him Fondue because of that. I'm watching this whole thing go down, and I'm 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 bow ready, and I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden, they break off, and they get done fighting. And the one one of the deer comes, the the one with the chocolate tips comes to the clump of dirt. I'm like 25 yards, got him. I sit back and I, I, I take my time and I, I draw and I anchor and I let the arrow go and it goes right underneath him. Gives I can see a poof of white hair, gives him a haircut on his belly and it hits the dirt and he goes running away. And I'm just, I'm devastated. Like what, did, how, what, I don't know if I just didn't, didn't, you know, if I pulled it or what was going on, but I was like, everything felt right and it doesn't make any sense, you know? Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, episode number 217. Nick Hoffman, the farm, the fiddle, deer hunting, and a wild ride. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, the Horny Buck Seed Company, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Scent Lock Enforcer. Take control of your odor footprint with the Scent Lock Enforcer, your personal ozone generator, and Morse's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hi, this is Ben Rising with Whitetail Edge. Sit tight as you're about to listen to the best podcast you possibly can listen to, the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Bill Vale from PressureDeerPro.com, and you're listening to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. This is Johnny Eberhardt. I've been hunting out of the saddle since 1981. I'm about to listen to my favorite podcast, Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. My name is Jay, and for Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller, I'd like to welcome you to the show. I suspect that you are somewhere in a tree stand right now. A couple of things I, I would like you to do for us, if you could. If you would, please, go check us out on iTunes. Subscribe. Leave us a review. We want to try and push this podcast up the charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there, and I need you to take some action. I need you to go and leave a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access to this show each and every week with a notification on your iPhone. If you're not on an iPhone, don't worry about it. But you can access this this show on YouTube in its entirety, on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. It's all right there for you to, to grab and listen as you please. Here's a quick word from our friend Tom McMillan from the Sportsman's Channel on Hashtag Deer Week. Tom, tell me about uh, Hashtag Deer Week. What's that all about? Deer Week is going to be a celebration of the great sport of deer hunting that we all know and love. It's going to be on both the Sportsman's Channel. I'm going to be hosting it on the Sportsman's Channel. A friend of mine, Michael Waddell, you may have heard of him. I He's going to be the yes. host. <laughs> yeah, He's going to be the host on Outdoor Channel. And there's even going to be some kind of going back and forth, some riffing between Mike and I with some split screen stuff and 
Hashtag Deer Week is how, how the viewers, the listeners out there can share their deer hunting stories. They can ask questions. They can be involved. And it's just uh, it's something that the Outdoor Sportsman's Group celebrate. This is basically is a, the society uh, that we all are of deer hunters. Every evening, starting October 15th through the 21st, from 7 to 11 Eastern Time, on both networks simultaneously, it's going to be nothing but deer, deer hunting techniques that, that a lot of us use, uh, answering questions from viewers and listeners, tactics that we have, how different ways we have, our favorite deer hunting stories, our favorite deer and venison recipes, you name it. It's, this is about nice. all everything that can go into an individual's hunt or a hunting season or you know, it's like you say, a certain way that you would hunt. So this is, this is all about deer hunting, everything you'd ever want to know. So it's right around the corner. And the idea is, is that all of the shows that, you know, would normally run from 7 Eastern to 11 Eastern each evening in their designated time slots, every episode is going to be what they either consider to be one of the most informative deer episodes that they've ever got or their favorite deer hunt, or maybe even a collaboration of, of all the above. Starting October 15th on each network, Sportsman's Channel and Outdoor Channel, 7 Eastern. Everybody needs to be tuning in for Deer Week. We'll turn to our interview with Nick Hoffman in just a moment. But before we do, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, what happened to the tiny key deer during Hurricane Irma? This story was originally featured on the Miami Herald website and was reported by David Goodhue. The federally protected key deer were exposed to Hurricane Irma, and authorities will assess their situation when it's safe to return to the Keys. Dan Clark, superintendent of the National Key Deer Refuge, said his first priority as the massive storm approached was to evacuate National Wildlife Refuge personnel assigned to the area. After we receive information from Monroe County that it is safe to return and we can inhabit the lower keys, a post-storm assessment of our facilities and residences will be conducted to determine if we can operate, Clark said. The small deer, whose estimated numbers range from 800 to 1,000, live mostly on the lower key islands of Big Pine Key and Little Torch Key. What's become of the deer is not known, but Clark said not much could have been done to protect the animals from Mother Nature. Since the federal trust resources on the Keys Refuge are wild, we do not have sufficient sufficient plans to collect any deer, Clark said. We do not have the capacity to do so, and husbandry following the hurricane would be extremely difficult. Like all other agencies planning to come back down to the Keys post-Irma, Clark said he and his staff have no idea what types of conditions to which they are returning, so they can't adequately plan their response when it comes to the deer. We will assess the status of all refuge resources when it's safe to do so, and we have the ability to do so, Clark said. New urgency for hunters to test deer for CWD. This story was originally featured on the Wisconsin State Journal website and was reported by Stephen Verberg. The University of Wisconsin-Madison lab that checks deer carcasses for deadly brain disease said Monday there may be increased urgency for hunters to test for chronic wasting disease this year based on new scientific research. Preliminary results of studies released earlier this year in Canada found for the first time CWD could be transmitted to primates. There still have been no known instances of humans contracting CWD, but hunters should know the new study demonstrates the risk isn't non-existent, said Keith Paulson, Diagnostic Case and Outreach Coordinator at the Wisconsin Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory. We're sure the risk is pretty low, but it's not zero, Paulson said. It would be a mistake to ignore it. 
Scientists and some leaders of hunting groups have expressed growing concern about the rapid spread of CWD through Wisconsin's deer herd, but most hunters don't take advantage of the free state testing of the deer they kill. CWD is related to incurable illnesses that can cause dementia and death in humans. All of the diseases are caused by proteins called prions that can change their characteristics over time, Paulson said. CWD's tendency to change and its ability to incubate in some animals for years before symptoms appear are among factors that make eating CWD-tainted meat risky, Paulson said. Health officials recommend that hunters strongly consider testing and that they not eat infected venison. The State Department of Health Services tracks cases of human prion diseases like Kretzfeld-Jacob and compares them to registries of people who eat venison, but the agency has said it hasn't found significant correlations. California's general deer season opened September 16 across much of the state. Hunters advised to check out area closures before heading out. This story was originally featured on the DeerFriendly.com website. Deer season is already underway in two of California's deer hunting zones along the coast, but 11 zones open Saturday, September 16th. Six other deer hunting zones open the following week on Saturday, September 23rd. Severe winter weather conditions took a toll on some migratory deer populations, and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, the CDFW, reduced the number of tags for a few popular areas in order to sustain herds over the long term. Not all populations suffered heavy winter losses, however, and CDFW's trail cameras and fecal DNA studies revealed bucks out there for the taking. Detailed information on California's various deer zones, including season dates, descriptions, and maps is available on CDFW's deer hunting webpage, www.wildlife.ca.gov forward slash hunting. Hunters are strongly advised to check area closures and local restrictions before heading out. Fire season is here and several large wildfires are burning currently, which may close some areas to hunting. Additionally, the severe winter damaged roads in some areas, which may account for other closures or restricted access. For the 2016 season, a record 84% of deer tag holders complied with California's new mandatory deer tag reporting requirement. CDFW thanks all those who reported and hopes for increased participation following the 2017 season. California is phasing in the use of non-lead ammunition for hunting. Lead ammunition is permitted for hunting deer in California in 2017 outside of the California Condor Range. State wildlife areas or ecological reserves where non-lead ammunition is required. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Thanks to Jim Keller with the Deer News. Next up is our interview with Nick Hoffman. When you get your own Wikipedia page, you know you've done something notable. Turns out Nick Hoffman has a page on the interweb-based encyclopedia, and he should. Nick made a career out of playing fiddle next to the likes of Kenny Chesney, Keith Urban, Trace Adkins, Sarah Evans, and Brooks and Dunn. But the fun doesn't stop there. Nick has a show on the outdoor channel called Nick's Wild Ride, where he hunts different parts of the world, but explores and documents unique aspects of the local culture while on location. We suspect that Nick learned a thing or two while hunting different species, so we asked him. He said the big thing is to play the wind, sit down, and shut up, which happens to be an old Fred Bear saying. So without further ado, here is Nick Hoffman. Nick Hoffman, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm well, man. Thanks for having me. How are you? 
I, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, it smells like deer season out there, and it's, it's got huh. that cool, crisp feel in the evenings. It feels like it, early bow season. Man, it sure does. I, you know, I'm in uh, right now in Nashville, just north of Nashville, Tennessee, uh, at my house, and my home farm is about an hour north of here, in uh, north of Bowling Green, Kentucky. So, you know, the weather here is a little different than where you're at, right. but right now the mornings are like 50 degrees 60 degrees it's getting cool it's a you know it kind of dank and cool in the mornings and it all of a sudden boom it just feels like that so our early season here is hot still early season in the south is completely different than early season in minnesota where i grew up let me just say that (laughs) i can appreciate the minnesota uh, weather and atmosphere there because i'm in the northern climate too so I, i understand oh absolutely you know and it that's what's funny to me is that the, the the most attractive thing about deer hunting to me is that deer are the same everywhere you go for the most part. You know what I mean? And they, they might look a little different or their bodies are a little bigger or smaller, but it, it, it that early season deer thing is addictive to me because they they are patterned and they're they're in a they're in a a routine that yes. is predictable, especially here in the South. I mean, you know, I've got a legitimate chance of shooting a big deer in velvet this weekend. And that's really fun because every single day on camera, these deer are coming in within, a, within 10 minutes, like they're on a, like they're on a dinner bell. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Boom. 10 minute. you know, a seven, here's 725. Here comes the big eight. You know what I mean? Boom. And, and I think that's really fun. It's a different kind of it's a completely different deal than November. You know what I mean? Oh, it's totally different. Yeah, we I've, I've hunted some of the South Virginia and uh, some of the Southern states, and they're all they seem to be on a pattern. It was you know, October still, but still on some, a bit of a pattern before they really get off their pattern. Yeah, and you can't necessarily get that everywhere else, you know, because your your season starts a little later. And mm-hmm. so, but here in the South, that's one of the fun things about hunting deer in the South is that yeah. you get that you get those couple of weeks of velvet pattern before they drop drop velvet and start getting all getting all right you know in love yeah so and it's fun went to visit a buddy brian down there in virginia and he dropped me off at, a, at one of his tree stands and he said at, at six o'clock thereabouts there'll be two doe that come down the trail and sure enough here they come and it's it's, yeah. it's uncanny yeah i love it it's great yeah. sorry i got off on a diatribe there that's all right i love tangents man tangents cool. <laughs> this is what the long form podcast is all about tangents and diatribes you're um so you're from Minnesota. You're in Nashville now, but you're from Minnesota. That's right. What uh, whereabouts in Minnesota and what was what was your childhood like growing up in Minnesota? I grew up uh about an hour north of the Twin Cities in, north of a town called Anoka. Um Anoka is famous in the hunting world for being the home of federal premium ammunition sure, and yeah. uh big company. Um yeah, and of course my family is a uh, very, very the the history of federal is very much entwined with the history of my family. Um, I I grew up on a little farm just north of there, about fifteen twenty minutes north of Anoka, and this the the connection that I have to federal is uh, really interesting because my grandfather is a um, he's an inventor and an electrical engineer, and he invented a lot of really interesting stuff, including the the electric photo cell eye that is um, used in like modern day depth finders and stuff like that. And so, oh, cool. um, and back then he was in the service and uh, he had developed a, this eye that would help um, 
break an electrical connection basically if it um, if your hand crossed it. It was basically an electric a photocell beam that went across. And the reason he came up with that idea is that there were young ladies in the federal uh, federal ammunition plant that were losing their fingers in these uh, these presses because if they got their fingers in just the wrong spot, it would could smash their fingers off. Right? He had this idea to create basically a light barrier where if their fingers got in the wrong spot, it would shut the machine off. Hmm. And, and so, and that, and so he, he, because of that federal hired him to implement that technology and all of, all of their machines. And, uh, and the, the president of federal at the time was so impressed with his kind of engineering acumen that he funded, um, an engineering company called Hoffman engineering and, uh, which is still to this day, Hoffman engineering is still there and it's connected. The federal ammunition building and the Hoffman engineering building are connected and they share a cafeteria to this day. Oh, and, good. uh, yeah. So if it weren't for Charles Horn and federal ammunition, my family, uh, wouldn't, you know, probably still be, uh, in Anoka and, you know, and, and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't just have the kind of life we've had. So it's, uh, it's by no means, we didn't grow up super rich or anything like that, but my grandfather made a living as an engineer and, and developed a company that became ended up his name is on a on the build, side of the building this day. So it's kind of pretty pretty neat story. I'd say there's so. another tangent for you. I have a feeling this is going to be a conversation of tangents. <laughs> Perfect. You're, you're, yeah, you're well suited for a podcast, Nick. <laughs> but you asked about uh, how I grew up. Um, I had the the coolest area to grow up in when it came to the the lifestyle that. And the kind of kid I was, I, I started playing fiddle mm. when I was four or five years old. My grandfather is a fiddle player. My grandmother's a piano player. We had jam sessions at the Hoffman house every Saturday night for the most part. That's people awesome. just start, people just started showing up around six o'clock and didn't really need an invitation. And we played music every weekend. And, and so I was really lucky to have grown up in that. And I was close enough to Minneapolis, you know, an hour away that, um, you could, you know, go into town and, and hear concerts and, and do really cool stuff that was inspiring to me as a musician. But I also grew up in the middle of, of a intersection of a farm town called Now Then Minnesota, which is at the time was famous. They had t-shirts that said Now Then, now then Population 47. And, uh, <laughs> and it was an intersection. And on the intersection, there was uh, a gas station and meat market that processed deer. Uh, on the other corner was a Case IH dealership. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there was a church and then a house and the guy that uh that lived in the house owned um owned all of that stuff and so uh he he was he was the guy that um that was a big inspiration for me in my life i worked at that case ih dealership i worked at that meat market i did a bunch of stuff when i was younger so i grew up in like this cool central spot where i had all the music i wanted but i also was in the middle of of i was half hour from pheasant and grouse country, like major pheasant and grouse country. I had pheasants outside my door. Sure. I had, I had deer walking through my backyard every day and I had, I lived for we, the 40 acres in between us was, uh, bordered up to a little tiny lake called Pickerel Lake and it was full of ducks. And so I was in just, in just this wildlife hotbed. The only caveat was that I, I didn't, uh, have anybody in my family that hunted. I didn't grow up in a in an outdoor family at all. Uh, that being said, we loved being outside and you know doing hiking and doing stuff like that. But nobody in my family hunted. Wow! And so I was one of those kids that that just for whatever reason was called to it. 
I had, I wanted to hunt from the time I was just a kid, a baby, baby. I've just always wanted to hunt. I was never a, a shoot 'em up army kid, you know, that ran around the yard with guns, you know, bang, 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 bang. I never played cowboys and Indians. I, I wasn't like that at all, but I always wanted to hunt. And from the time, I don't know, 10, 10 years old, maybe when I was able to have a little money, I spent my money on field and stream magazines. You know, I, <laughs> sure. I, I read about the, the, and, and daydreamed about going to New Zealand or, or hunting in Iowa or, you know, mule deer hunting out West, like those things, those stories, and even going to Africa and things like that, those stories in those magazines just it absolutely captured me. Mm-hmm. But I, even th- and I, I read the, that stuff and dreamed about hunting long before I ever got a chance to hunt. And what it, what the the uh, my introduction to actually going on hunting was my neighbor. Um, I w- went over there to help him mow the lawn one day, and I saw his mounts in his in his house. And I he had a bunch of mule deer mounts and a bunch of whitetail mounts. And I asked him about him about him, and he he said, uh, "You know, I'll take you hunting if you want." And of course, I jumped at that, and so he took me. Um, muzzleloader hunting in for the first muzzleloader season in Minnesota uh, when I was 12 years old and we we took a Kentucky long rifle a patch and ball wow and, and loose powder which was I didn't know at the time but he was a traditional hunter and was really he's re- really neat guy yeah. I didn't you know didn't put all that together at the time no labels for me then and uh, and he took me out and uh, and my life was changed I mean literally it, I I would consider my life pre that hunt and post that hunt. And, and then after that, that same winter, um, my, a good friend of mine took me on my first duck hunt. And so that, that year was that winter, that season, uh, when I was 12 years old, just changed everything for me. And so all of a sudden now I had two parallel paths, my music path and my hunting path. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. I mean, talk about a great impression that a Kentucky long rifle and a ball and patch hunt would leave on a kid. You know, and I think, I think now that I look back at it, I don't, I didn't realize how cool that was at the time, right? Like, right. you know, even just, even just the, the marksmanship side of it, you know, we practiced, we, I would go across the, across the, the way, uh, across the field and, and go over to his house, uh, you know, every other day and we'd sit there and shoot that thing and practice. And he would teach me the trigger was literally, I, you could take a hair and pull a hair back on that trigger and it would go off, you know? And, and he taught me the, the basics of, of, of marksmanship and the basics of trigger control and all these things that I didn't realize he was teaching me at the time that laid a great foundation for me. And it was all, it was all because of that, that gun, you know, the trigger would go off and there was a, there was a, split second before it would go boom and you had to you had to control your body to make sure that you let everything surprise you and all these things that you now use and you know that i use in bow hunting you right. know when you're shooting a bow all these all these technique things all started with that big long kentucky long rifle you right. know right so pretty cool that is cool, cool. stuff so Mi- minneapolis it was where you kind of formed your music career it sounds like well, yeah, and you know, growing up in Minnesota, period, there's a there's just a huge music scene in, in Minnesota uh, on on rock, pop, country, and bluegrass. And so I was a fiddle player and a, and a singer, and I, I I wanted to play old country music and bluegrass. That's all I cared about. And okay. believe it or believe it or not, Minnesota is a hotbed for fiddle players. Uh, th- here in Nashville, there are probably uh, I don't know ten fiddle players from minnesota which probably make up about half of the fiddle player population here isn't that interesting wow yeah it is and the reason for that is that 
there's big German and Scandinavian immigrants sure. uh, population in Minnesota. And uh, the same thing with the, all the hillbillies in uh, in the south. A lot of those are German, Scandinavian, uh, you know, Irish immigrants. Mm-hmm. And and all those cultures have big fiddle contingents. All their music is very violin fiddle based. And so um, all the traditional Scandinavian songs are played on the fiddle. And a lot of people wouldn't think about it like that because you think about it being a southern country instrument. Yeah. But it's really a traditional instrument from the old country. And so um, there's a lot of fiddle players that come out of Minnesota. There's fiddle contests every weekend and stuff. So I grew up in this kind of fiddle hotbed in a way. And uh, and that shaped who I, who I was and what I, what I did all through growing up. When everybody else was out playing football, I was practicing my fiddle. Right. That's you know? fascinating. I, was, I spent – I don't know, four or five days in Minneapolis in the middle of the winter uh, one year. I don't know why I was yep. there in the winter, but it was about as brutally cold as I can remember any place I've ever been. Mm-hmm. It's a miser- it's a miserably cold place in the winter, there's no doubt. Right, and I think it was there in a, it, mid-January. And as I recall, there were underground tunnels that you could travel through to avoid the cold. Yeah, we call them the hamster tubes. The hamster tubes. The hamster yeah. tubes, exactly. Uh-huh. And I didn't know that until we were on our way out. And so we we just, you know, had our our cold gear as we were walking. It was a business trip. So we were we were in suits and we were walking down the Minneapolis streets in the cold, but there was nobody in there. So we were stopping in at a bar every as long as we could take the next phase of the walk <laughs> where we were going to. But I do remember that the culture and the it seemed like everybody was blonde blonde hair and blue eyed. Everywhere oh, I looked, yeah. it was it, so the Scandinavian ethnicity was there for sure. Oh, it's very much so, especially in that part of the state. You know, the central and northern parts of the state are are just loaded with Scandinavian immigrants, and a lot of a lot of that's because Minnesota is very similar geography and uh, or at least uh, you know topography and and landscape and even soil wise, it's very very similar to to Scandinavia. Fascinating. So, All right, so yeah. land, land of the Vikings, in other words. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. Pretty interesting. That is very interesting. So you're, so that more or less was the foundation of some of the, the future of your life as a musician and as a hunter. And do you remember the first gun you ever shot? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Uh, My, so we didn't hunt, but we, there was always guns around. Uh, My grandfather on my, on my mom's side, we would go up uh, to, to their house in northern Minnesota, and and there was a little gun range not too far from there. And my grandpa and my dad and I would go there and shoot uh, his twenty two. Um, so I would say from five six years old, shooting a little twenty two long rifle was my first was my first gun, as it should be. That's what everybody's first gun should be, right? So it seems uh, like that is everybody's first. gun. Yeah, and we, we would go there, and the, I just have the the most wonderfully. Uh, fond memories of going to the range with my dad and my grandfather, and uh, and and there's actually a, a pretty funny story that my the first swear word that my parents ever heard me <laughs> heard me utter was at the range with my grandpa because I would shoot and couldn't hit anything, and then my grandpa would come up there and shoot uh, would shoot right away, and he would hit the bullseye every time, and I and I turned to my dad and I said, Dad, Papa's a, f-. <laughs> and he goes, Excuse me, young man. You know? <laughs> Like, Whoops. first of all, where where do you hear that? And second of all, uh, you know, where'd you learn that? And second of all, he is kind of. Yeah, you're right. You're, you kind of <laughs> got that. So, no, and and we they still laugh about that to this day. I don't know whether or not you can you can say that on your podcast or not, but that's that's a funny story. We'll, we'll probably 
bleep it out in, yeah. in a way. We, we, <laughs> we have this. We have a sound effect that's the uh, an arrow hitting a target, and we'll just very put good. That in there. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah. So your 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 music career seemed to have taken off. I mean, you've played with some pretty big stars, and you have to be pretty good to make a living at it. You want to talk a little bit about how you transitioned out of Minnesota, which is the sure. land of fiddle players, and, and got into a major scene. Yeah, the 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 way it all went down for me is um, I I always knew that I was going to move to Nashville. I always dreamed about being on the Grand Ole Opry. That was just that was going to be the path of my life from the time I was probably 15 on. I knew oh, wow. what, what I was going to do. And so um, – Without getting into some of the more boring details of it, in a in a uh, a long story short, is that I I ran away from home when I was just uh, uh, not quite seventeen, okay. and one one night I hopped a Greyhound bus with about sixty bucks in cash and a guitar and a fiddle and a sack full of clothes, and I I uh, I went to Branson, Missouri, mm-hmm. and that's where I thought I was going to make it big, you know, and I had been down there on vacation with my grandparents uh, about six months before that. And I was really taken with the idea that, man, what am I doing here in Minnesota spinning my wheels when I could be down in Branson making it big. Right. And so I did, I hopped, I hopped a Greyhound and went down there and, uh, and played on, played for tips and made some money and, and, uh, and, and got a hotel room for a week. And that hotel room for a week led to, uh, you know, getting an apartment for a month, and I ended up getting a job at a at a show called the Dixie Stampede down there, and I played fiddle in their pre-show, and I rode horses, and sang in their main show, and 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 uh, and I just it literally was where I kind of cut my teeth a little bit, wow. and uh, and so I was able to kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps there, and that trip to Branson led me um, to meet a guy who who subsequently moved to Nashville. And, uh, he ended up, uh, playing for this, this guy, Kenny Chesney, who was just getting started at the time. So fast forward a couple of years, I'm ready to move to Nashville. And, and so I moved there in January of 2000, U-Haul pulling my pickup behind and, uh, I come into town and, and I don't know anyone. And so the only guy that I know in Nashville is this guy, Wyatt, that I, um, that I'm, that I knew in Branson a little bit. And so- um, a friend, uh, fiddle playing friend of mine connected me with, with Wyatt again. And Wyatt said, you know, Hey, it's crazy that you've, that we've gotten in touch because we've recently fired our fiddle player. I'm still playing with this guy, Kenny Chesney. Would you be interested in playing with us? And I said, <laughs> I said, uh, well, of course, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll we get, you know, let's do it. So I hopped a bus and went on a two week run with him. And, uh, and, uh, 13, 12 years later, I was still there. And at that time, that first gig was in a club for in Atlanta for, I don't know, a thousand or less people, like 500 people. And within two years, it was stadiums full of people. And it just, it just, it was literally every musician's dream come true. You know, it was Leno and Letterman and award shows and, and all the stuff that I dreamed about as a kid. Wow. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of luck there. There's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of, things that had to align the stars had to align to make that happen and and i was i think my my time in playing in bands in minnesota and my time in branson you know had me prepared for it but the truth is i wasn't prepared for when i look back at it i was green as the grass you know what i mean i i thought i knew what i was doing and i thought i was good at what i was doing but when i look back at it now 
I was 19 years old and all those, all those old veterans in that band looked at me like I was just, well, lead looked at me like I was 19. You know what I mean? Like, sure. you, sure. you know, so young and dumb is what I was, but, uh, I managed to somehow through their patience and guidance, I, 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 I got my, uh, I got my stripes. So that's really interesting. I mean, that's, that sounds like the quintessential rock star story, right? Like, uh, run away from home and, and head to the place where the music is. Right. And, and you know, it, that's, it, it literally was, it seems when I look back at it, like something from a movie and then it gets better, you know, uh, uh through that, I meet all these, these people that I've looked up to my whole life and, and these stories of imp- inspiration could go on and on about, you know, the time that I, had a quick conversation with Bruce Springsteen backstage and he told me about, you know, how hard it is to keep a band together and, you know, these kinds of things and like just neat stories that I could go on and on about. And what the one thing though, through all that, that was missing was, was the, was the thing that I really did move to town for. I to to be my, to get my own record deal and to be my own artist and to right. write my own songs. I'm on the radio. And so, um, you know, through, uh, the years I kept working on that, and I ended up uh, um, forming a group called The Farm, and uh, we got signed to Warner Brothers in 2010, and and uh, had two top 40 songs on the radio, and 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 that was the culmination of it all for me. You know, getting getting to write a song, have it have it be on the radio. You know, our first single, Hope Sweet Home, was a was a top 20 song. You know, and and it it was it was that was the culmination for it all for me, you know, okay. getting nominated. We got nominated for, for a bunch of big awards and we played on all the, you know, the, the TV shows and stuff. And, and that's, so I've gotten to see it from all sides and literally live every musician's dream. I mean, get to play next to your, one of your heroes and one of the biggest artists in the world. And then on top of that, get to have your own record deal on a major label and, and do your own songs and, 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 uh, and that's not done yet either. I got a brand new solo record coming out in the spring. So, uh, it's, uh, it's a, just a, a constant evolving thing, this music, right. you know? Do you think that life should be more like that where you take a chance and go to the place where your, your dreams are and instead of kind of getting caught up in the day to day, nine to five office type jobs? Yeah, of course. the The answer for me would say, "Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course, that's what everybody should do." But it to me, it seems condescending to say, "You know, you just need to shove it all aside and go after your dreams." You know, the truth is that yes, we we are all so concerned with the nine to five and the grind and the keeping up with the Joneses um, that everybody seems to. Put, set their dreams aside. You know, when you're young and you're you're in your 20s, you you have all these ideas of what you what you need, what you want to do with your life, and then jobs and bills and keeping up with friends and and wives and husbands and kids they they come into the picture, and that's a real thing, right. you know. But early on, I was really lucky. There was a couple of things that helped me. One of them was my dad. My dad is the hardest working guy. I know. Okay. He owns, he owns a, he's a self-employed heating and air conditioning guy and he's been very successful at it, but he's, it's just him. You know, he goes around in a van and he, he is that local guy that you call when your furnace or air conditioner breaks. He works really long hours. Mm-hmm. He works his absolute butt off. And one day we were driving down the road at, in his van and I asked him about whether or not he likes his job. And he said, what I like about my job is the freedom I have that I, I don't work for anybody. I'm my own boss. He said, but if I had it all to do over again, and this is probably when I'm like 12 or 13, 14 years old, he says, 
I always really wanted to be a pilot hmm. and I never went and learned to do that. Yeah. And I would have liked to have maybe gone and been a pilot. And it, it just, it just knocked me down in the dirt because here my identity with my dad was this, he's, he's a furnace guy. That's what he does. And I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. And here I found out that the coolest guy in the world does it, would rather be doing something else. You know what I mean? And, right. and, and so he said to me in that same sentence, he said, you know, you have the ability right now to do anything you want. And if you work hard enough at what you're doing right now, if you work hard enough at playing fiddle, it'll, it'll take you wherever you want to go. Right. And, and that's not as cliche as it sounds. Those are the words he said to me. And I, and it changed everything for me because I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get there. I'm going to do it. And I used to stand in front of the fiddle and in front of the mirror at night, spinning my fiddle bow and pretending to be Roy Acuff on the Grand Ole Opry, <laughs> you know? And, and I knew that's what I wanted. Right. And, um, and I think that's the best gift anybody can give you is to, to get you to chase your dreams. And so um, there's a great quote from Lee Iacocca, who's the, you know, the guy that brought GM back from the brink back in the day. And, right. and, and, and he, one of the first sentences in, the, in his autobiography is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, this isn't exactly how he says it, but he basically says, there are, you look at a successful person, you will look for, you'll look at somebody who is, who is, jumped off of cliffs and taken leaps more times than they can count. And, and you, you can't just jump off a cliff blindly, but if you know there's water underneath there, then there's nothing wrong with jumping. You're going to be okay. You know what I mean? And it's like, if you, so you don't make stupid decisions, but you have to be willing to take leaps. Right. And every leap I've ever taken in my life, the Nick's wild ride TV show included, you know, I, I, I stressed about it and worried about it. And then two weeks later, just two weeks, even a week later, I'm like, man, why did I worry so much? Right. You know, this is, this isn't that bad, right. you know? And, uh, and the same thing goes for running away from home. You just got to believe in yourself and go for it, you know? And that sounds so cliche and I'm so careful to say stuff like that because saying follow your dreams sounds so, so cheesy, but I'm here, to, I'm living proof that it works, you know? I, and yeah, it is a bit cliche. I, I give you that, but it it seems like there should be more of that in the world these days, more than ever. Uh, the country isn't built on brick and mortar anymore. It's built mm-hmm. built on Amazon and digital more than in a, a lot of ways. More than well, it ever has, you know. Absolutely, I think the one thing that you know, if I'm going to wax poetic about that at all, I would say this. I I get that question quite a bit, right? And the sure. one thing that I notice about, you know, I'm nearly 40 now, so I can start to look at people and call them kids a little bit. You know what I mean? Sure and the can, one right, thing I can right. say about kids, kids nowadays is that they, there's, it's such an instant gratification society that everybody wants something, but they don't want to work for it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, I, I want, I want to be a, I want to be a rock star. I want to be a famous actor. I want Hey, the one I hear all the time now is, Hey, I want to have a hunting TV show. How do I do that? You know, well, man, it's, it, first of all, it's it it all those things. You don't just get you don't just flip your flip a switch or flick your you know snap your fingers and it it doesn't just happen like that. It happens literally at at the expense of something else. Everything you don't get anything by it without giving something. And and it's also time on the water put time you put in and the amount of resourcefulness and hard work you put in. That I mean it's an equation. And and I think that people aren't willing to put the work in for their dreams half the time. And that's, and then they get bitter that they didn't get them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the, the 90% of the people I know that have had big success, they just literally devoted everything 
and they risked everything for it. Gotcha. And I mean, even the, I have a buddy who's a, who's a climbing the corporate ladder and he has taken three or four major leaps. He, he left cushy jobs to go into another one that he believed was better. And then he, and then he left that cushy job to go to, and he just, he wasn't afraid to leave the comfort to try it and get something better. And I, I think people are afraid of losing their comfort and they want it to happen overnight. You know what I mean? Right. Right. So I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> I don't know if it's blah, 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 man. I think that that's got some merit there. And yeah, I, I don't know how to explain to somebody that they, that it's important to take those leaps because it's difficult when you do have kids and, and you know, people are resting on your shoulders to produce and that's, it's intimidating and scary, but so rewarding if you can uh, step out a little bit and, and test the water. Absolutely. I, I have another friend that just I just thought about now that just literally took a $100,000 pay cut to go after her dream job. Wow. And 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 she sat down with her family and said, hey, you know what? We're not going to be able to go on that trip we had planned last year. Right. Next next year. We're, we're not going on that now. Right. And are we all okay with that? And and her, you know, her family said, yeah, we can do that. And most people are afraid to even have that conversation. You know, they, they just say, they give you all the reasons why they can't do something rather than the reasons they can. Right. And hey, I'm not going to judge anybody else, but I, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that if you really want something with, with, with very little exception, you go out and do it. You know what I mean? I think that's fantastic worldly advice. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you did. glad you took and, your own advice way back. And, and well, and also it goes it goes into everything. I mean, I just I I, I say it about if you want to go on a sheep hunt, you know, if you want to go to Africa and hunt, if you want to go heck, if you just want to go to Pike County, Illinois, with an outfitter once in your life, it's really a it's way more affordable than you probably think. But mm-hmm. b you can do it. It might take you five years to save for it, but you can do it. Right. And and you can find out ways to make it happen. And most people just stop at, oh, well, I'll never get to do that. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. And I, I hate that because the world's your oyster, right? <laughs> it is. And it's, it's so so your oyster. And I, I'm glad you, you, you left home actually back when you did because it sounds like you've had a very interesting life. And now I understand why you call your show Nick's Wild Ride. Well, the the show that's a whole nother story, right? right. So Let's so the so the here's here's the evolution of that. So okay. one thing I found about country music and hunting is that almost every country artist, male artist especially, wants to be a professional hunter and and every professional hunter seems to want to be a musician or or be next to musicians. You know what I mean? You you see it all the time. You you see Lee and Tiff hanging with uh, you know, with Brantley Gilbert and Luke Bryan and you see Nate Hosey making a new record. You know what I mean? And so y- you you get both sides of it and I think the reason for that is that country music, the demographic, we're we're all the people that live country music also are the same people that get out in the woods and hunt. And so they're all one and the same and we're all the same kind of person, right? And you, so You would think so. Right. Yeah, and, and I think I think there's a lot a lot of similarities there in that demographic anyway, is my point. So through the country music thing, I started meeting um all these these hunting celebrities and these different personalities that that like to hunt. And so one day I I get a call from somehow or another uh he got my number. His name was Mike Andrews and he was the the guy that um, was the marketing director for Scentlock at the time, and he's since passed away, and 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 was a an incredible dude. And he called me up and said, "Hey, you don't know me, but 
my name's Mike, and I, I'm with a company called Scentlock, and we make, I said, he goes, we make, and I go, I know who Scentlock is, buddy, trust me, I, I, I know, and he said, you guys are coming to Detroit, and I'd love to surprise my, my boss with some tickets. He said, I'll trade you a whole Scentlock get-up for some tickets, and I said, oh, I'm in, where do I sign up, you know? <laughs> And so I got to meet these guys through the Scentlock guys through that. And, and after that, we stayed in touch and he said, Hey, would you be interested in coming out and hunting with Phil Phillips? We have a show called wildlife point blank and you could be on the show. And I said, sure, I'll come do that. So I went on a whitetail hunt in Texas with Phil Phillips. So we did that. And there about a week later, their producer called me and said, Hey, uh, we really loved you on camera. We thought you were really cool. We've got this brand new show with this couple called the uh, called Getting Close with Lee and Tiffany. And sure. it's in its first season right now. And we're about to start filming the second season. And I was wondering if maybe you'd be interested in coming on their show and going hunting turkeys in Iowa with them. And I said, well, sure, of course, I'd love to do that. Why wouldn't I love to do that? So next thing you know, I'm at Lee and Tiffany's house in Iowa and hunting turkeys. And, and I just got to be fast friends with them. And they're Minnesotans and, you know, we just hit it off and, sure, and right, right. about that same time, they, they, their popularity just exploded. And so next thing you know, I'm, I'm on their show every, uh, just about once a year. I, you know, I do some sort of hunt with them once a year on their show and, and people would start, you know, started saying, you know, man, you ought to do your own show. You ought to do that. I said, man, I ain't got time for that, you know, and, and, and just, it just kind of, enjoyed getting out to hunt with people. And that led to getting to know Don and Candy Kiske. And I would do some stuff on whitetail freaks. And, and, and next thing you know, I'm filming every hunt that I do. So now I'm taking a camera with me everywhere I go and I'm filming everything and, and I'm enjoying that aspect of it. And, and I'm sending my, my hunts over to these guys and I'm sending them into monster bucks. And next thing you know, I'm kind of lit in doing that thing a little bit. And I, the, that all laid the groundwork for me getting to know a bunch of people in the industry. Sure. And so, and so now fast forward about, I don't know, this is 10, 10, 12 years after all this. Um, I'm at ATA show visiting some friends and I literally would just go to ATA show to hang out with friends and drink beer, you know, and, and get <laughs> so to, get to check what, out some, right. Yeah. That's it, what we do sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I would just go and hang out and check out new gear and hang out with people. And, Mark Baird, the producer of Getting Close and The Crush, uh, and who's it doesn't produce The Crush anymore. He's got a company called Watermark Productions, and he produces several different shows, including Whitetail Freaks. He and I got to talking over a beer one day, and we were kind of bitching about outdoor programming in general. Yep. You know that that it's that it just in my in my opinion, I'm a I'm a fan and a and a and a consumer. I love to watch outdoor TV. I love it. And I, I just felt like the quality was, in, you know, overall was just going down, down, down. And it was the same stuff rehashed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The same argument. We don't need to get into that right now if you don't want to. But the. Oh, let's go. I, he said, he said, he said to me, he said, all right, smart, Mr. Smarty Pants, what would you do if you had a TV show? And I said, well, I, <laughs> I, that's, that's, I said, I thought about it for a second. I said, you know what I'd do? I said, I'd do exactly what I do anyway. I would I would have like an Anthony Bourdain style show. I, when I go on a trip to hunt, I spend an extra day looking for a local beer and a local burger. Or right. if, if I end up talking, I love making friends in, in, when I travel and doing different things. I said I would I would have it be as much about the experience and the travel side of things and the lifestyle side of what an area has to offer and the place you go to hunt as much as the hunt. Right and 
and you know you go basically you go to a destination to hunt and explore local food culture music booze uh whatever whatever it, people whatever comes around and and he he said man i really like that idea and that we just left it at that and he called me up a a couple weeks later, he said, man, I'm still thinking about that idea. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so we just, we left it at that. Well, Dave Watson, uh, who, you know, is a bit of an industry legend and is, you know, did Matthew's TV for years. And yeah. he and I got to talking one day and he, he just, he loved that idea. And he said, he said, uh, you know, and then what you do, you know, he said, he, he suggested that maybe we get a different celebrity involved and they give me a ride to where I'm going and all these things. And we had all these different ideas for it. And Dave was the guy that really helped me develop it. He's, he, he was the impetus for the whole thing. And he's the guy that came up with the name Whitnick's Wild Ride. And he said, you know, you just follow you around and wherever the wild ride takes you is where it's going to be. And, and, uh, so Mark Baird, uh, and Dave Watson kind of together helped me, um, help me develop this. And the idea was maybe we would have a pilot and we'd see where it went. And, uh, if anybody actually liked the pilot, then we would, we would continue from there. So we filmed the pilot and, uh, it was a turkey hunt in, uh, Louisiana where I went and made hot sauce and, and ate lo- local Cajun food and did a crawfish boil and went turkey hunting in the swamp. And, uh, and long, you know, next thing you know, the thing just took on a life of its own. Right. I started showing that around and, and, it was, it, it really was what we tried to do. It was something that was actually different. And you hear that a lot. Oh, I got a hunting show that's different, but this actually had a different feel and a different flair to it. And, and it just, like I said, it took on a life of its own and the network outdoor channel, uh, really, uh, just, just grabbed it and they, they loved it and they've, they've rallied behind it. And, and of course fans, have rallied behind it too. And next thing you know, we've got wives sending an email saying, Hey, this is the only show that I'll watch with my husband. Right. And you've got husbands saying, thank you so much. Cause now my wife will actually sit down and watch with me. And she bought me a scent crusher bag because she watches your show and you know, those right. kinds of things. And yeah. so, you know, and, uh, and that's in a nutshell, how, how it all started. I, I think you're onto something. I mean, if, if ever there were a concept for a, a new generation of hunting shows, I think this is it. And the reason I say that is I, I love the hunt. I love the isolation of the hunt. I love being out there and, and hunting, like the, being actually out about hunting the species. And what I mean by that is learning the species, understanding their habitat, actually tracking them down in the, the northern parts of where we live, where we need snow to follow that animal for hours and hours and finally maybe get a shot, but you learn so much. Right. And I love that aspect of hunting and being in remote areas is also fantastic. But there's this other element to hunting that never seems to make it to the TV show until you came along is that you have to travel to certain parts of the world to the different parts of the country. And within that part of hunting, there's a whole culture behind it. Uh, whether you're traveling to the South and trying some barbecue or mm-hmm. whether you're traveling to any part of the country or around the world. Or the world, absolutely. The, the cultures that you encounter while you're traveling go so untold if you're traveling around the world. You know, I don't, I never understood that. That's, that's as interesting to me as the hunt itself. And, you know, if, if you talk to somebody about that takes, takes a trip somewhere and says, you know, hey, how was your, uh, how was your Montana mule deer hunt? 
you know, and they say, they say, uh, oh man, it was so cool. You know, what was it like? And they say, man, the first thing they do, they don't tell you, start telling you right about the deer right away. They tell you about where they were right. and what it, what it looked like and what the outfitter was like. And, and, or, or if they didn't outfit, what the little town that, and I ran into this farmer and this farmer, you wouldn't have believed him, you know, and, and you go on and on and you tell the story of your hunt. And so there's, there's that aspect of the, the travel side. And I think people are interested in that because some people feel like, like we talked about earlier, maybe they'll never get to go on that hunt and they can live vicariously through it. Right, right. But other people are interested, right? The other side of it is that every place you go, every place in the world has a story. They, there's a history there. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is open your eyes and pay attention to it. You know, if you walk, if you drive into the square of an old town and you see that courthouse in the middle of the square and you go, I wonder what the history of that building is. Right. And right. It, all you have to do is ask someone the question and they'll go, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so was shot on the front steps of that, of that, of that courthouse. And all it takes is scr- it just literally to scratch the surface and, and that scratch turns into a crack, turns into a hole. I mean, it, it if you just dig a little bit, you'd be surprised everywhere you go in the world, you'd be surprised what you find. And, and, and I, I get so into that history and that culture and the people. And I've always been like that, but having this impetus to, to, to take a place and it usually starts with a hunt. We, we, I'm still the the hunter. And the one thing that I, that I kind of laugh at is the naysayers about a show like this are the kind of, you know, the, some of the traditionalists or whatever you want, might want to call them. Yeah, you're always going to have haters. That's a whole nother conversation. But sure, but, the world uh, is full of but, them. Yes. Yeah. So, but the one thing they say, well, that man, that ain't a hunting show because they're used to a hunting show being whisper, whisper, point, point, shoot, shoot for the whole thing, right? And that's fine. Trust me, I love to watch those shows. I love it. But mm-hmm. they they say it's not a hunting show, and that I say to that, you've never then you've never watched it because the, it still centers around the hunt. The, we we plan episodes. Not necessarily around, we don't plan around the area. We don't go, okay, we're going to go to this area because it's an interesting on the lifestyle side. We we go there to hunt. We plan the hunt first, and then we figure out what makes that place tick around the hunt. And and um, that goes to going to hunt birds in England, and it goes to hunting uh, whitetails in Iowa. Right. Wherever it, whatever it may be, it's the hunt first. Mm-hmm. And, and then we find out what makes that place tick. Right. And it's so much fun. It's so, so interesting much fun. because, I mean, as you were hunting around anyway, whether you, if you've ever traveled to hunt and you, and you're, you're, you're plopped or you're removed from the place where you grew up or where you're, you call home and you're plopped into a spot that you've never been to before. The people are very interesting. The landscape is way different than anything you've ever seen before. If you've only hunted in one spot. That's right. And the food and drink is guaranteed different than anything you've ever tried. And there'd be little, little, uh, cultural differences in the food that, and, and food types, things that don't make it to where you live because of who knows what, but you're going to, you're going to find a whole new delicacy. You're going to find a whole new line of, of beers at some microbrew that, uh, is based off of the, the immigrants of, of the area. That's right. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I think your concept, and I think you're right. I could sit down and watch this with my wife who could care less about any hunting <laughs> show, but yep. she would be interesting, interested in this because you're telling so much more of the story. And that's what every hunter story really is. But for some reason it never makes it to the tape. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that the goal is to, is, is to have something for everybody. It's, it's hardcore enough for the hunter, 
but it's also interesting enough for somebody, even if you don't hunt. And, and what's interesting is the way that non hunters have, have, um, gravitated towards this show. You know, somebody that's flipping through the channels and mm-hmm. finds it and watches it. And then what's your job after that? Well, then your job is to present hunters in a good light and to make sure that we're representing, uh, if we're going to find some audience, uh, you know, it, of course, the, and of course the audience is probably 10% non-hunting and 90% hunting. Right. But right. if that, that, those 10% that discover it or somebody that comes from the music side, a music fan that comes in and finds the show, then, then the job is to make sure that we're, we're presenting hunters in a good way, you know, that we're, we're showing hunting in, in, in a positive and ethical light. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, all those other aspects to think about as well. And, um, I, I, I'm up to that challenge and I enjoy it. And I like, I like being able, and we've had multiple people, uh, weigh in, call in emails, uh, you know, stuff like that, that, that say, Hey, I found your show and, and I've been watching it for two seasons now. And this year I bought a bow and I'm going hunting. And, and I think that's, I mean, what, what could be possibly be a better compliment than that? Right. Nothing, right. you know? Because in the end, that's the only thing that's going to save us, man, is recruitment and retention. You're right. You know, you're right. And this is a this is a very good way to introduce the non-hunter, not the anti-hunter, the non-hunter, into and gravitating into a concept of, of what hunting can be in, in a whole, not just a piece, not just a little puzzle of what we've been showing for for years and years. To not just the kill, not just the the hunt in the field, but there's so much more to it. That's where you're going to drag those that other 80% that are sure. on, on the fence or just not thinking about it, that we need as allies as we continue to make sure that our tradition and, and lifestyle is fully preserved. Those are the folks we need on our side. So something like yeah. this, I think brings them into the mold. Oh uh, yeah. That, and also I think that when you arm the, 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 the people that hunt already, when you, when you, I know for me personally, I, I didn't hunt anything but whitetails and ducks until I was in my mid twenties, late twenties, no, early twenties. Like I I went on my first elk hunt in my early twenties, right? Right. That was my first trip to hunt outside of turkeys, ducks, and deer. That single trip made me so much better of a hunter because, because it got me outside of my comfort zone. It forced me to try something different in a different style, in a different way, and made me think about how I approach an animal completely different. And I was able to take that knowledge and put it into my deer hunting back home. I, I hope that the other thing we do is inspire hunters that maybe have never had the chance or even thought about going and doing something different. Maybe we can inspire those, somebody to say, ah, you know what, man, I want to, I, Nick just hunted, uh, you know, mule deer in Africa. I mean, sorry, in Mexico, I would love to go down there and do that. Right. Or, or maybe it's, it's just literally like trying to hunt whitetails in a different state. Or whatever it is, if you just get yourself out outside of your comfort zone, you'll learn so much. And on top of that, you'll learn more about hunting in general. You'll learn more about other people who hunt. And therefore, you'll be able to represent yourself better when it comes to talking to those people that don't hunt. You know, and, and I think it's all one and the same. And I don't mean to wax all poetic about that, but I think that stuff is so important. I really do. I completely agree. Well, you've been hunting for quite a while now if you go back to your original kentucky long rifle introduction to where you are today you've hunted lots of different since, places yeah since i was 12 yep. since you were 12 this is this has been a, a, a lifelong um, endeavor here what what types of styles and strategies and techniques have you adopted over the years that you're finding success with um 
whether it's it's gunner or bow or um, scent control, things like that. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned over the years that you now apply to all your hunts as you go through the woods and and, Um, and, in the field. What a great question. The trajectory of my my life as a hunter has been been kind of a a wave in a way. So when I was younger, when I finally got out and hunted for the first time, I was obsessed. And up until the point where I ran away from home, I got out as often as I could. And I, you know, was deer hunting and pheasant hunting and duck hunting and hunter safety. You know, of course I went through my hunter safety course when I was 12 and all that stuff. And then when I, when I left home, um, there's a lull in there where I didn't, I was so busy on the road and playing music, I didn't have the chance to get out as nearly as much as I liked. Sure. And then when I moved to Nashville, it was on the road a lot. So there's this lull where maybe I get out once a year and do something uh, in between the time I was like 17 and my early 20s. And when I finally settled down enough and I started getting back into deer hunting, like you know, hardcore again, is when I discovered bow hunting. It was the first time I'd ever uh, hunted with a bow. I had actually shot a bow quite a bit like in leagues and stuff back home when I was a kid Yep. and I loved archery, but I'd never hunted archery cause I didn't know anyone who really bow hunted that much. Sure. And so I got back into bow hunting and that changed my life. You know, that, that feeling of the intensity of that first bow hunt of, of it was a doe in Kentucky and shooting that deer at 15 yards with a bow was the most intense thing I'd ever done. And I, I, I just, I'd never felt my heart pound like that. And in it just, it was like heroin in my veins. I mean, it, it literally, it was the most addictive thing I've ever experienced. And I'm still addicted, you know what I mean? To that day, it, it hooked me so hard. And so from that point on, it was archery, archery, archery. And I was lucky enough to, you know, get to do some really cool, really, really cool hunts uh, with a bow. And, you know, it was caribou in in the, you know, in the Arctic and it was elk hunting and, and, uh, uh, black bear and a bunch of really cool stuff. And, mm. and I just, the, every species that I tried, not only did, did it make me further trenched into the bow hunting thing, but it also got me addicted to the travel side of hunting, right. you know, that right, sure. as much, trust me, I'll always, when it's all said and done, I'll be, I'll be in a stand hunting a deer, you know, but I love, I loved exploring new places and trying new things with the bow. And so when Nick's Wild Ride came along, I, the first pilot was, was with, uh, was, was the turkey hunt. And then there was, uh, the, the very first thing we ever did was a, was a archery elk hunt and it's, it was archery, archery, archery. And then, um, Kimber came along as a title sponsor and they make amazing, amazing rifles. And so it was Kimber, interestingly enough, that really got me back into hunting with a gun and, there's, you know, obviously the factions in hunting that it's like, you know, hardcore bow hunter and, and, and then the rifle hunters on the side. Right. And then there's the Western rifle hunter, which is a whole nother deal. Right. Sure. Right. Right. So, so th- these factions, um, really never mattered to me because I just did what I did, which was bow hunting. But when I started hunting with a gun, it, it, it opened up a whole nother kind of aspect to the thing that, which was this surgical precision type of type of hunting. And I loved it. And, and, and I really enjoy hunting with a gun. I'm not saying that for the rest of my life, the only thing I ever want to do is hunt, hunt with a gun. And I really don't enjoy whitetail hunting with a gun, but I really, all of a sudden my eyes got opened up to this backcountry, you know, sheep and goats and all this other stuff that I never probably would have gone and done if I hadn't, if I hadn't started hunting with a gun. 
And so what ended up happening is my reintroduction to hunting with a gun has opened up all these other possibilities for me, including going to Africa and all this other stuff. Not that you can't do that stuff with a bow, and I have done some of it with a bow. Right. But but I've really I I've enjoyed working hard on my I work as hard on my marksmanship with a rifle as I do as at, at shooting a bow, and I think it just makes me a more balanced hunter. It makes me better at at. I'm better at rifle hunting because I'm a bow hunter, and I'm better at bow hunting because of some of my rifles rifle experience. It makes sense to me. I think get, you know the there's as much uh, variability in a shot, in a long shot, as there is in a, a 50 yard shot with with an arrow. So mm-hmm. uh, you have to know your stuff. You have to know uh, windage and and uh, distance. There's a lot to that that is every bit as complex as a good bow shot. Yeah, and I I love it, and I I just I think it's I think the reason I love it is because I've been bow hunting so long. It's something new, right? It's something fun. It's another aspect. It's another uh, you know uh, feather in your cap or however you want to look at it. It's sure. another tool right. that I've got that can take me to another place. Right. And I I mean I went to I went to England for example, and I went over there to to hunt birds. And while I was there. I, they, well, right before I went, they asked if I wanted to maybe go hunt a fallow deer. And I said, absolutely. And they said, well, you, you know, they, the bow hunting's illegal there. I know. So, I know. That, that so, was a so fascinating like, aspect. See, there you go. There's that cultural thing that you didn't that's really right. realize and until you. If it weren't, yeah. And if it weren't for the gun, I never would have, never would have been able to hunt big game there. Right. And, and yeah. And so I think, you know, it's just, like I said, that's another technique that I've got in my, in my bag now. Right. And I've really, I've really enjoyed, um, the rifle side of things right. I have. Right. And to hear that, you know, uh, bow hunting in England is illegal. You, the, the American in us is those silly Brits, you know, what, what are they thinking? Uh, yeah. But their, their perspective is that maybe they're just not good bow shots. I don't know. But their perspective is that they, they want a good clean kill every time. They don't want That's right. any miscue whatsoever. And, you know, we all know if, you know, if you've, if you've uh, if you've hunted with a bow, you've wounded something at some point in your life. That's you know right. it, it it does happen, but you know it can happen with a rifle too. Um, I I guess if you really are objective about it, I can see I can see that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But on the same token, um, I work really hard, just like every hunter should to 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 make as to be as proficient as you can and make the best ethical shots you can. You yeah. know, absolutely. Yeah, I've made my share of mistakes. That's for sure. You're going to with a gun too, not just the bow. I can certainly mm-hmm. certainly see their perspective, but I also don't. I guess there are arguments for both sides. Oh, absolutely, no doubt. So, as you have you as you've traveled around hunting big game, have you noticed any kind of uh, pattern as far as scent control that you have to uh, adapt to, or is uh, is there anything? Outside the ordinary that we maybe we haven't heard yet, as far as wind, uh, wind playing the wind or hunting. Man, the wind. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the one thing that is is as I went, as I kind of um, evolved into from from my whitetail background into more of a worldwide big game hunter, if you will. Um, the one thing that has driven me the most nuts is is you know when you're whitetail hunting, we just I mean obsess about scent control, right? Like right now, I mean, I start whitetail hunting next week. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I've been wearing, uh, scent free deodorant and, and been scrubbing myself in, in, uh, and using only scent free soap for two weeks already. Right. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've, you know, I've just obsessed about my clothes and everything, every facet. I wipe my bow down for goodness sakes. You know what I mean? I do everything. And then you go out and even when you go out West and you go elk hunting, 
I mean, it's like literally the guide shows up and smells like like high karate. You know what I mean? And and <laughs> and, and and that's the guide who's who's supposedly the guy. And in the end, it boils down to wind, right, right? Right. And the difference between elk hunting and whitetail hunting is that when you sit in a stand, oftentimes you, you it's three sixty. You never know where something's going to come from. You try and hunt the best stand for the wind, but you really, at any given point in time, can have something underneath you, behind you at any point, and that's why we do all the crazy stuff that we do. Right. You know? Um, what's interesting to me is when you go around the rest of the world, they don't, they, they laugh. They laugh at that kind of stuff. And it, it boils down to, you put the wind in your face, and if it isn't in your face, you're not going to kill anything. End of story. Right. You know? And that, that to me, has been tough to... Because it's so ingrained in me, I'm like, no, 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 you stink, man. We can't do this, you know. And and it's not, it's not like that, you know. And it goes to show too. It, it, that's I've taken that back to my to my whitetail uh, um, hunting. You know, I used to, if there was a marginal wind, I used to be like, ah, it'll be fine, you know. I don't hunt a, I don't hunt a stand anymore unless the wind's right for it. Because it doesn't matter how much scent control you really do. All you're doing is trying to get those few extra seconds out of that moment, but you're never, you're never going to fool a whitetail's nose. Right. Ever. Right. That's my opinion. Right. You know, you're, you're in my experience too. All you're, maybe what you're doing is by using a nosonics or, or, you know, using the scent crusher bag or spraying yourself down, you're just giving yourself that, that edge for that extra 10, 20 seconds of them sniffing the air, trying to figure out what, what you are, you know? Right. But in my opinion, you're never going to, you can't fool a whitetail, you know? Right. I, that's that's my that's my opinion. I'm sure that you'll hear all the the haters for that, but I, I think yeah, I hear it all. I hear it all. Does it all does sides. it mean? Do, am I saying that that stuff doesn't help or matter? No, it does, and I use all of it. Right. You can bet you can bet your butt that I'm going to use every single tool I can this weekend, and I crush all ozone all over my clothes. I spray everything down with a spray. Mm-hmm. I do it all. Maybe it's because it makes me feel mentally better. If nothing else, it makes me feel more ninja in the stand, you know. <laughs> right. and, and and I'll take every edge I can get, I, every I single think, one. I think a lot of us do. This the, the the cloak, the cloak of of scent invisibility. And maybe it's all mental. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But whatever, whatever. But, as long I'll as take it. I, I'm exactly. with you. Totally, totally with you. Let's uh, let's go on a, a memorable deer hunt, Nick. If you can think back to a, a time that it might be your most memorable of all time, and and walk us through how that whole hunt unfolded from dawn to dusk, or maybe the hunt started before that. My most. It's such a tough. It's tough. such a tough one, you know, because every hunt. I mean, literally, my mind is going through the 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 picture book of of deer hunts. Um, I think, I think my favorite, my favorite story is, is, is the one that got away story. So, so I, I was in Iowa hunting with, uh, Lee and Tiffany and, mm-hmm. and which is first of all, like Disneyland for deer hunters, right? It's, it's the, I think they have some of the best whitetail ground in the world. And, and it's because they have the, the means and time to manage a, a large, large piece of pieces of ground for, solely for the purpose of hunting whitetails. It's, it's literally like Disneyland for whitetails. And, and I was just so lucky to draw this Iowa tag and get to hunt with them this year. And I was so excited because I'd never gotten to be anywhere where, you know, you grow, if you're a whitetail hunter, you, you, you look at social media and you watch these videos and dream about those giant Iowa deer. You know what I mean? That's, that's the, the Holy grail, those big bodied, you know, giants that, that the Midwest is famous for. Right. Right. And so I, now I've got this opportunity and, and I'm, 
I'm there in Iowa and I'm, I'm looking at all these mounts on the wall and I can't sleep at night because I'm so excited and, and, and it's the middle of the rut and, and there's guys coming in from the field, not just at their place, but just all over Iowa that, you know, you know, how it is deer season. You're texting, what are you seeing? How's it going? You know? And everybody's just like, man, the rut is kicking and you're going to get in the woods and you're going to freak out and it's going to be nuts. So I get the first morning I get up and I get my bow and I, I put everything on and I spray myself down and we, we, we drive out and I, I, uh, change my clothes outside the, outside the truck and do everything right. And I get up in the stand and, uh, we're with a cameraman and, you know, we're just getting everything. We get down, we get it. Everything's perfect. We sneak in there and, and we, we walk on, walk on the leaves and we're just taking our time and walking really slow and just doing everything right. And we get up in there and we don't see a thing, not a doe, nothing. An hour goes by and two hours go by and, and I'm just, I'm like, what are we doing wrong? You know, we're over a food plot that is just gorgeous, just frost covered clover. I mean, it's just beautiful. And it looks like literally something you'd see on TV. You know what I mean? And, right. and, um, and we know cause on camera stuff, we got all the Intel, you know, there's shooters in here and they should be here. And, you know, so-and-so saw a deer in here a couple weeks ago and this, this kind of thing nothing there's not even a doe out there and it's cold you can see your breath and like i said frost on the ground and so i take my time and i i start ranging different spots you know because it's it's a field you know so it's it's a little difficult too if they come out on the edge of this field there's no, no real stick that you can range and and know your yardage or anything so i i i, I range a clump of a clump of dirt and it's 25 yards and so i'm like there's my mark you know i know somewhere around that clump of dirt and so I, I, I'm not a huge fan of rattling. I, I it works. Okay. Um, and I've, I've used, I've, it's not that it doesn't work it, for me. I just, I, I'm, I tend to subscribe to the, if you're in the right spot, they will come. You know what I mean? They'll eventually be there. I, I like to just be sit down. I mean the best, I don't know. You can wear the best camouflage and do the best scent control and everything. I mean the best, the best c- control of your visibility and your scent is, is, or is just to sit down and shut up and stay still. That's my, that's my, that's my opinion. You know what I mean? So we just sit down and we're quiet. And finally I'm like, I got to do something. So I pull out my rattling horns and I, I bang them together for a couple seconds. And within seconds is a five-year-old deer. That's about 165, just giant deer. Interesting. And he comes, comes, comes walking out and he's looking around and he's in the corner. He comes to the corner of the field on the opposite side and there's steam coming out of his, out of his nostrils. And it's just like, he's just, and you can see the fog. I mean, it's, it was something out of a movie. I'll never forget that scene. And so we wait and we watch and it's definitely a shooter. Mm. And, and from the other side of the field, right kind of behind us and to my right comes in another deer and I can hear him walking through the woods. And I'll be damned if it isn't another five-year-old deer. And here's two <laughs> two mature deer, and they're at opposite ends of the field, and they they see each other. Wow! And they come to the middle of the field, and they 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 just they have a absolute knockdown dragout brawl right in front of me. No kidding. And and it is I'm 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 just first of all I had I actually had a moment where I go. Even if I don't shoot one of these deers, this is deer one. This is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. You know what I mean? This is like what you see on TV. This is like a movie, you know. And it's going on and on and on. And there, and I'm talking to the camera guy. I go, hey, that other deer. They're they're both shooters, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know one of them. And one he had the one deer. It was a big mainframe ten that had 
had chocolate tips um, that from I don't know where he lost his velvet or whatever. All like almost all the tips of his antlers were were um, like brown, and they called him they were, they nicknamed him Fondue because of that. And so, um, so anyway, I. I'm watching this whole thing go down and I'm, I'm, I'm bow ready and I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden they break off and they get done fighting. And the one, one of the deer comes, the, the one with the chocolate tips comes to the, to the clump of dirt. And I'm like 25 yards, got him. So, so I, I, I sit back and I, I, I take my time and I, I draw and I anchor and I let the arrow go and it goes right underneath him. Gives, I can see a poof of white hair, gives him a haircut on his belly Oh wow! and it hits the dirt and he goes running away. And I'm just, I'm devastated. You know what I mean? I'm just like, what did, how, I don't know if I just didn't, didn't, you know, if I pulled it or what was going on, but I was like, everything felt right. and It doesn't make any sense, you know? So I'm just mortified. I'm almost in tears. The biggest, it would have been the biggest deer of my life. I mean, he was pushing 170 kind of thing. And and it was just a, just a gorgeous deer. So finally I start kind of replaying it and I can see my Luminok and my arrow out there. So I range right where the arrow's at and the arrow's at on like, 60 yards and so i go i go looking back and shouldn't be at 60 yards you know and i look back and there's a clump of dirt and then there's another clump of dirt and there's another clump of dirt and what i had done was he just came to a clump of dirt and in my in the moment it was so fast i i just assumed that it was the clump of dirt that i had ranged at 25 yards he was 45 yards away wow so i shot him for 25 he was 45 yards away and I just shot right underneath him. And it was just, in the moment, all I saw was clump of dirt and deer. And I thought, well, he's in my spot. You know what I mean? And I just I just completely had a brain fart and screwed it up. And what would have been the biggest year of my life, walked away to live another day. So, But to this day, I think about that deer every, every single day, morning. Right. Every morning when I wake up, I lay in bed. And for whatever reason, that deer pops into my head. It's the one that got away and is still the coolest haunt of my life. So... I guess I have right. to look at it like that. And and deemed the most memorable, obviously, because you probably think about that one more than any of the others. Probably so, you know, and I think that that, and I don't know, maybe that shows the mark of a, of a, of somebody that really is passionate about hunting when it isn't just about the killing, you know, it's, it's about the whole thing. You yeah. know what I'm, you know what, you know what, and I said it to myself in the middle of that fight when they were fighting, I said, if I, even if I don't shoot one of these things, how cool is that? Right. And it's about those moments that you're not supposed to see, you know, the, these things that are supposed to be private to the deer, private to nature, you know, these right. things that humans aren't, aren't, we're not here to see, you know, I love being privy to those moments, those, those private moments of nature that, that, you know, most people never get to see, I, and being being in that moment of time, I, I, I I'll never forget it. I think it's so cool, and uh, and that's what keeps me coming back. Right. You know, right? Yeah, there. I think some of the, some of my most memorable deer hunts are the ones that I didn't get. Is yep, and they're equivalent to the ones that I did. Was some of the best hunts that I've I've had. It is funny how they kind of rank up there. And you know, I. I recognize that, you know, when I start off a story by saying I was hunting with Lee and Tiffany, uh, automatically people are like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> no, I'm never going to get that opportunity, you know, right, but right. I also recognize that, that how cool that was to begin with. Right. I mean, you know, um, just, just to hunt prime whitetail ground mm-hmm. and, and to see it's like an aquarium for whitetails. You know what I mean? It's just, it's the coolest, the, it was the neatest experience, you know, right. and, and, uh, and I'm just really lucky to have gotten to do that. Don't get me wrong. I've had my, my share of public land, uh, triumphs and, uh, and, uh, mishaps as well. Right. 
Uh, lots of them. <laughs> it's part of hunting. That's that's why they call it hunting. Let's uh, let's go down through a 10, 10 rapid fire question uh, exercise here, if that's cool with you, Nick. Absolutely. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? Sit down, shut up, and stay still. Love it. It's <laughs> a great one. It really it works and, well. And, it really does. And I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. It took me a long time to to not only to believe in that but to figure it out because I I am a, admittedly a ridiculously fidgety ADD kind of dude. So uh, that's I think that's why I love the tree stand. You know because it forces me to to uh, meditate a little bit, calm myself down. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I don't know. I read it somewhere once. You know, something about the best the best camouflage is sitting still. Right. You know, it's true. I think that's a that's an old Fred Bear uh, saying. Is it? I is think that so. what it is? I'm pretty yeah. sure. I yep. have to do that. I'm pretty sure. Yep. And you know, we go what we go by what Fred Bear says. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, there you go. I was right. going to say there's uh there's the that's the the Bible right there. There it is. You know. Yep. All right. We all have these items that we we like to hunt with for whatever reason. Maybe it's a good luck charm, or it's actually makes us better at at our hunt. And it drives us crazy if we leave it in the truck or at home while we're in the field. What's that one thing for you? Oh, um, I've got a little tiny, um, this is a fairly new one. It's about seven, seven years old now. I've, I've got a little tiny plastic cowboy mm. that my daughter gave to me when she was about two and she knew I was going hunting and she, she gave this to me and, and she, you know, she was old enough that she could talk a little bit and she said for good luck. And, or good luck daddy, you know, and she hands me that little, that little plastic cowboy and it's been in my pack everywhere I've been That's all around right. the world ever since. And actually you're probably the first person I've told that to. No, I don't think anybody else knows that. Um, but I, I, uh, would never leave that thing at home. That is my good luck charm. That's that fantastic. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one. All right. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? In life? Mm-hmm. I hate it when I see, I travel all the time, right? Right. I go to the baggage claim in an airport. Yep. And if you go to a baggage claim in Europe, everybody stands back. Yeah. And if, when your bag comes, you just step forward. Yep. And get your bag, and then there's like a gap in there so that so that you have room to do that. At, at every other airport in America, everybody crowds the baggage claim. Right. And you can't move. You can't get to your bag. And then when you do try to get to your bag, somebody gives you a dirty look or a d- dirty looker is pissed off at you. That <laughs> is my pet peeve. That's a, I that's, I hate that. I don't know why that bothers me so much, but every single time I go to the airport, it makes steam come out of right, my ears. Right. That, I'm sure there there's a lot more pet peeves, but that <laughs> there, there are a million pet peeves, but that's that's one good snapshot of of the classic pet peeve. That's why they called pet peeves. You know, these, I hate it so much. It drives me nuts yeah. to the point where going coming down the escalator to baggage claim makes my blood pressure go up. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> All right, so you're you're forty ish these days, Nick. Yeah, I'm thirty eight. Thirty eight. All right. What I'll be thirty eight. I'll be thirty eight on my first day of elk hunting this year. All right. My, my I've, I've hunt. I've killed an elk on three. The last three times that I've hunted elk on my birthday, I've killed an elk on my birthday. So let's hope that that happens again this year. That's a heck of a good birthday present. Yeah. Right. What uh, What would you tell the seventeen year old Nick Hoffman, knowing what you know today? Oh, shut up. Like literally shut up. That, that's, that's what I would say to myself because, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a really passionate person and that comes across in, in, um, how I talk and how I, how, what I do and, and, and how energetic I am about, about the things that I do. And looking back at myself as a young guy, I, I made a lot of mistakes by just not sitting back and shutting up and listening 
and learning. And, and, uh, instead I wanted to be, you know what, you know where it comes from? It comes from the fact that I started playing in bands and stuff and doing lots of stuff with adults from a very young age. And I always wanted to be an adult and I always wanted to be older and I wanted to be the cool guy. And so when I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I tried too hard to be the cool guy. And I could have learned so much and avoided so much embarrassment if I would have just sat back, shut up and listened. And, and, uh, now when I go to a, if a 20 year old Nick or 17 year old Nick would have went to a deer camp and tried to tell all the stories, you know what I mean? Be the guy that right. was, that had the stories. Now, 40 year old Nick sits, sits in a deer camp and sits back and listens to the stories. And, and I've learned a lot more in the last 10 years than I probably did in the, in those first 10 years, mm. you know what I mean? Because of it. So 17 year old Nick, if you're listening, shut up, shut up. All right. <laughs> Similar to your, your number one hunting tip of all time, sit down and shut up. Yeah, exactly. Move. There's right. a lot, there's a theme going on here, right? There is. Yep. All right. You meet a uh, stranger at a hotel lobby somewhere in the world at a hunting convention or something of the, of that nature. And they come up and they ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? Ooh, that's a, that's a tough one in my case. Um, I think that I think I still I will always identify myself as being yeah, as a pro- professionally I'm a I'm a musician I'm a that's what I do you know um, because my entire adult life that's what I've done for a living um, the idea that I'm somehow somehow a professional hunter or something like that it, it I get, it, it applies now and there I guess there's some truth to that but I don't identify with that and I think that might be why our show comes across as authentic as it does and why people like it is because I'm not trying to be an expert. I don't consider myself to be an expert. In fact, I consider myself to, to, to be an average hunter. And, and so, you know, I get a lot more opportunity to hunt and, and I, I consider myself to be very consummate at it, but I, I will never claim to be an expert and I'm never going to sit and be that guy who, who, who does expert tips on his show, Hmm. man. I'm just a guy out there enjoying life, going on these cool trips and trying to share it and, and with people. And so I'll always identify with, with being, I'll identify as a musician. Um, but I, you know, the idea that I'm somehow an expert or a pro hunter, I'll never, I don't think I'll ever get there in my head. Okay. All right. Very good. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Mm, I had scrambled eggs and toast every morning, no matter what. I'm a big breakfast guy. I, and so it starts off, this is, and this is backwards. I drink about three cups of coffee mm-hmm. with nothing in my stomach. And then I get all jittery and feel like crap. And then I make myself scrambled eggs and toast. And you'd think that I'd learn, maybe I should eat first and then the coffee. Nope. I am, uh, coffee's like smoking a cigarette for me. I gotta have, I gotta have it every morning. First thing I go into Alaska, you know, and we're in the back country and I bring a pound of coffee and a little tiny French press with me and I make yep. boiled water and a good cup of coffee every single morning, no matter what. <laughs> I, I've been known to pack my own coffee and my own coffee maker, even if it's electric in my, in my I do the same thing, buddy. Yeah, yeah. The greatest invention for, for the coffee addicted hunter is that, um, those Starbucks via packets, those little tiny, uh, instant coffee from Starbucks are right, actually right. pretty good. They're passable. You know, That's it'll do good, good to know. I've, I, I have <laughs> fallen in love with my, my, you know, single canister espresso maker or double canister. You just, it's such a simple machine and yeah. it works so well, even as long as you have heat. That's, that's all. Hey man, I'm, I'm just as hardcore as anybody. And I will hike up. I, I hike, I train with 50 pounds in my pack and I can hike up a mountain with anybody, but I, I bring my coffee with me and I will not 
head up the mountain without two cups of coffee in me. There That's a go. fact. That's <laughs> my day exactly. <laughs> Call it what you will. The coffee goes on first. That's that's, that's my house. Yeah, and sure. on the flip side, on the the more disgusting side, it's it's bit me uh, literally in the butt a couple of times in the whitetail stand too. Too much coffee sometimes makes you feel not so good, if you know what I mean. Correct. So right. I've had to climb down. I've had to climb down a time or two. Yep. So I'll admit it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. All right, you get a blank canvas a billboard a blank billboard on the side of a highway you put anything you want on it what would it say you mean for is it advertising me or is can it just be. like can be or, or just or just like literally like a message of some can sort be a message uh, oh that's hashtag, that's anything. that's easy that's easy L- lately i've been i've been hashtagging uh posts with uh hashtag travel hashtag adventure and hashtag be happy beautiful what? and 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 i and it, there's a reason for that is because Somebody asked me recently that same question. They said, what, if you were going to hashtag your life, what would it be? And I, I, that's what I, that's what I said. I said, travel, adventure, and be happy. And I believe that those things go hand in hand. I believe that, that the more you explore and the more you travel and the more you just, and it doesn't have to be internationally. It doesn't have to be even in the next state. Just go check out the, a little town that's an hour from you that you've never been to hop in the truck and go somewhere. And you, if you, like I said, if you scratch the surface, you'll be amazed at what you find. And, and I, that's become nearly a religion for me. Mm. I mean, I, if I get a chance and I've got a couple days off, I, I, I'll just hop in the truck and drive around a little bit. If I find a little local barbecue stand or something like I've, I've discovered some pretty amazing gems around my house that I never knew that were there just by wandering. You know, it is amazing what you find when you look, it's crazy. All right. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops in your head and why? Man, that's a, such a good question. Mm. The first person successful, the first person that pops into my head is my dad. And and like I said before, I I think my dad embodies the true the American dream. I mean, there's a guy that that was intelligent enough to do anything he wanted, but he he chose to take the path of the of um working hard and working for himself and and uh sacrificing for his family and and still enjoying life my dad always still found time to go bass fishing on the weekends and and uh and fly remote control planes and now later on he's become a pilot and learned to fly you know he he enjoys life but he works hard and and uh i think that's the definition of success you know is is defining your life what you want for it and going out and getting it mm-hmm. and and i i i I don't know. I've, I spend my whole life trying to emulate my dad, you know? Right. That's a great answer, Nick. Okay. What's a typical day in your life look like? Sunrise (laughs) to sunset. Not nearly as glamorous as anyone would think. How about that? So, uh, the, the, my life, it wakes up, uh, it starts with, you know, uh, me pissed off at my alarm clock. I am not a morning person. I, I, I do, I reluctantly get up to hunt. I, it, it, not because I'm not excited to hunt. I just hate waking up. I, it's the musician in me. I, I think that I'm used to late nights and, and late mornings. You know what I mean? And right. so my clock is eternally on music time. So it starts with a, just a groggy, uh, grizzly bear after hibernation kind of hour, which, which involves the coffee and the, and then the breakfast and, and, and then it's for me, it's always work. And the work starts with, with, uh, with the computer and, and the phone, unfortunately. And then from there, my day 
could be anything from practicing music to uh, editing a TV show nowadays. It's it's not glamorous. You know what I mean? It's it's literally just the grind of of daily life, just like anybody else. I've got horses. I go out and shovel every day, yep. and uh, and and I I work my dog. I have a you know pretty badass duck dog. If I do say so myself, so I go out and I work him every day and uh, keep him keep him up up to speed and and then i uh i try to be the best husband the best dad i can be and then i i drink a cocktail and try to watch the news and go to bed and that's it (laughs) i don't know i that's it i want to give you something funny and something more more glamorous than that but that's it man that's it i work and uh i uh i play a little bit and i like i I enjoy a good stiff gin drink and then i uh, go to bed that's it drink oh wow no kidding I like whiskey too, but lately it's been gin. gin. I like gin. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I haven't uh, enjoyed a, a gin cocktail in quite some time. Gin and tonic, man. That's that's yeah. like the, the, what makes the world go around. It was one summer that gin and tonic was my go-to drink. I don't know why. It just <laughs> popped into my schedule. I uh, encourage you to revisit that. <laughs> all right. Think of me. Think of me. All right. I'll, take the, I'll revisit that sometime soon. <laughs> all right. And then last question. What's a typical deer hunting day in your life look like? I'm assuming that it's different than a regular day. Oh, I mean, deer hunting for me is religion and it's based in it's based in complete and utter um uh um what's the word i'm looking for um i could start over for you uh that's okay what's the word i'm looking for superstition so uh my my deer hunting is completely different than my normal life it is based completely on on superstition and routine and it's it's almost like a religious experience for me you know i get up in the morning I have my cup of coffee and I go and I, I take a shower with scent free soap and I don't just put shower. I mean, I scrub with, with a washcloth. I mean, I, I, I have this vision of me scrubbing away all the nastiness and then I, I put on my long johns and, you know, I go to the truck in my, my base layer and nothing else, everything's in a bag. And then I go out, you know, either in the four wheeler or the, or the, uh, or the uh, truck, and I, I don't I don't put on my clothes until I get to where I'm parked, and and I pull out my bow and I spray everything down. I spray my boots down. I get there and I I creep to the stand. I'm obsessive about making no noise, even when it's windy. And it's not because chances are nobody can hear me walking anyway. You ever had that time where somebody drove up to you in a four wheeler on the stand and you didn't even hear it until it, they were like 50 yards away? You know, it, sometimes. I think I'm overzealous about it, mm. but I creep to the stand and I creep up. To, and if, it, if, if the ladder on the, on the stand pops once, it's like it, if I feel like I've insulted the world, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. And, and I, and I, I check my stands ahead of time to make sure they don't pop. And, you know, I'm just obsessive about it. And then you get up there and uh, I sit down, I try and I close my eyes. I take deep breaths. I picture myself being a damn ninja, mm. you know what I mean? I, yeah. and, and then I wait. And ninety percent of the time, nothing comes. And ten percent of the times, ten percent of the time, something does. You know. Right. You and, mean you're uh, like the rest of us? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I lay, and I, 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 say, I close my eyes and think, though, but it, trail camera says so it doesn't lie, and it, they're here. I have to keep reminding myself that they're here. Right. You know, right. and that's it. Very cool, man. All right, I live, I live for it, man. I do. We, my buddies and I, we. This time of year, especially, we trade. You know, we're texting pictures back and forth and talking about pressure changes. And I mean, you know, I'm all excited because there's looks like there's a front coming through the day before I hunt, and it's just you know we're we're we obsess about every aspect of it, and uh, just like 
just like everybody else. We've got a, a camp full of traditions and a and a, and a bunch of lies. Lots and lots of lies. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Very cool. That's the 10 rapid fire questions, Nick. If we want to know more, if we haven't covered enough content in this and we have more <laughs> questions, uh, if there's a chance that, that we didn't get it for, further, far enough in our conversation, where can we find you on social media and your website? And when can we watch your show on television and what channel? And also, if you have some, uh, musically, if you have concerts coming up, uh, new albums debuting, where, yep. can, where can we find all that stuff? Well, everything's at nickswildride.net, uh, and uh, all my socials are Nick's Wild Ride. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff is Nick's Wild Ride, all one word, obviously. And uh, um, all the music and everything is at nickhoffman.com. So um, it all is one and the same and connected and it's all under Nick's wild ride. So, and, uh, you know, we're on outdoor channel Friday nights at seven thirty Eastern. Very cool, man. Very, very cool. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Nick. I've enjoyed talking to you. It's, uh, your, your, your wide, your, your ride is wild. I would say <laughs> in so many different ways. Your life has been, uh, a roller coaster in a sense where you, you've, you've, you were brave enough to leave home and, uh, made a go of it and, and we're in the right place at the right time. Uh, and that's that's inspiring. So thank you for sharing all that intimate detail with us today. Well, I enjoyed talking with you, and it's fun for me to get to just have a conversation and relive some of that. And uh, and you know, I think if you've never seen or heard seen the show or heard my music or anything like that, I think the one thing you can take away from this thing is literally I'm I'm just a, I'm a guy that's absolutely living his dream. You're looking at a guy who who has gotten the chance to live his life beyond his wildest dreams. And it's, I mean, how cool is it that I get to say that? And I, I pinch myself every day as I'm grizzly bearing it out of bed every morning. The one thing that gets me uh, gets me going is realizing how lucky how lucky I am and, and the, just how much fun it is and that I get to share it with people. It's just the funnest thing ever. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to share it with everybody. I enjoy talking to Nick. He's very down to earth, and you'd think that somebody that has reached the level of fame that he has, with the likes of Kenny Chesney and Keith Urban and Trace Atkins, that you know he, he might get a big head. But Nick's not that way. He's very, very humble, down to earth. He comes from humble roots, and I had no idea that that Minnesota was a fiddle, a fiddle playing hotspot. Didn't dawn on me. Best of luck to Nick in his television show and his endeavors and hopefully he'll continue playing the fiddle he's a very talented guy with a pretty interesting story dusty do we have a chubby times tip of the week this week yeah we do jay and it's going to talk a little bit about uh, what's happening you know pretty much launching off this week and the chubby times tip of the week is sponsored by morse's sporting goods firearms use firearms bows use bows located at 85 kentucky falls road in hillsborough new hampshire Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morsessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. You know, here in the Midwest, the, the crops are coming down. And, uh, you know, with the, with the crops coming off the fields and the the deer are going to start utilizing a morning and evening breakfast and dinner uh, on the edges of these crop fields, you know. If you're somewhere that you, you don't have crops, it might be something you don't understand. But right now, my focal point is, you know, season opens today here in Ohio, the 24th. And uh, 
it's it's just that time of year where you can sit along a, a freshly cut cornfield or soybean field, and these whitetail were or they're naturally going to be out there grazing for missed corn or corn has fallen off the corn head or beans that's come out of the bean head or the back of the combine or maybe they spilled a pile of corn turning there too much in their hopper but you know you focus on these field edges and it's something that uh you know if you play the wind and, and you play the the fresh harvest the, the deer curiosity really gets the best of them when it comes to freshly cut fields and it's something that's uh, been proven deadly for a great long time now that that these deer are going naturally you know the it's almost like they don't realize the corn's down and people can see them for a first week or so. So that uh, I, I'm going to focus on hunting the edge of freshly cut crops uh, for the first two weeks. And it seems to be a great focal point for me to, to be able to kill a mature buck. Excellent, my friend. Very, very good tip of the week there, Dusty. I appreciate that. I'd like to say thank you to Morse Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. i also like to say thank you to all of our sponsors. We deeply appreciate their support and Please go check out our sponsors. If you're thinking about buying any of these products in these categories or shopping at any stores, please go check these guys out. So I'd like to say thank you to Advanced Takedown Tree Stance, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Horny Buck Seed Company, Morse Sporting Goods, and back on board is the Scent Lock Enforcer. So take control of your odor footprint with the Scent Lock Enforcer, your personal ozone generator. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, Dusty at BigBuckRegistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, Facebook.com forward slash Chubby Tines Outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you or you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, Jay at BigBuckRegistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry. We're also on Twitter, which is Twitter.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry. We are also on Instagram, Instagram.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry, and YouTube, which is YouTube.com forward slash BigBuckRegistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice. Let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait. 